You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Happy New Year to you all. And uh, trust that you enjoyed uh, your week and New Year's Eve and all that kind of thing, that you uh, got together with some family and friends and had a good time. You know, it's, it's called uh, the most wonderful time of the year. And I reckon, you know, I know that's a world famous song and it, you know, they sort of sing it pursuant to, to this type, kind of moment, but uh, this season. But uh, I reckon it's especially great if you live in Southeast Queensland because the truth is, you know, an hour's drive, we're at the beach, 40, uh, half an hour's drive, we're in the hinterland, we can take a walk, uh, swim in, a, uh, in the base of a, a waterfall. Uh, I, I trust that you had some relaxation and you got together with family and friends. And if you're really fortunate, maybe your family are your friends and so they're the same people. And uh, you just had a great time. There's a lot of a joy that's associated with this time of the year. And that's got me thinking. Uh, it, it got me thinking uh, about the circumstantial aspect of that joy. In other words, there's a lot of happiness and there's a lot of joy because of the circumstances that surround our lives this time of year. Which led me to ask this question. Is there a joy available Is there this overwhelming sense of happiness that is not necessarily subject to a season? Not necessarily subject to circumstances. Is there a relentless joy? Um, A a joy that can coexist and ultimately overwhelm even the most dire of experiences. If, if you're interested in this, if you go, well, I, I'd like to think there, there would be, uh, I can advise you that Jesus, a historical figure of matchless significance, um, prayed a prayer that concerned me. Prayed a prayer that concerned you, that your joy would be full, that his measure of joy would be your measure of joy, that you'd have the joy and the peace that Jesus himself had. And speaking to his immediate disciples, he said to them, he said, you will have a joy that overwhelms your life from this time forward. Now, the fact that he's told them that they would have a full measure of joy, was the way he put it, um, was quite remarkable when you think that he probably understood what the future held for these guys. He knew that for many of them, they would be tortured and, and they would die, they would suffer the most dire of consequences, and yet he said they would have a full measure of joy. This is amazing. Jesus is talking about a joy that can coexist and ultimately overwhelm the deepest of disappointment, the most dire of circumstance, even to the point of alienation and in regards to those disciples, disease, torture, and even death. Now, now here's the question. It's a serious question for this time of year, I suppose, but do I have that? Do you have that? Does your joy tend to you know, bounce around pretty much on the wave of circumstance? Good circumstance, there's an eruption of joy. Bad circumstance, there is an overwhelming sense of depression. 
Uh, that would be the case for most people. Uh, Paul, who leveraged a lot of what Jesus said and then gave us some detail, gave us some application, I believe took this idea that as disciples of Jesus Christ, you could have a full measure of joy despite your circumstances. And he wrote quite practically to a group of Christians that were undergoing some amazing trials at the time. It was indeed their experience. Their authorities didn't like them. Um, many of them had been alienated from their families. Some had lost their lives. Many had lost their jobs because of their faith in God, their, their belief in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul writing to them in Romans chapter 8, 18, he says, I consider, and we're going to come back and look at that word, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The reason he says present sufferings was because there was present sufferings. These people were undergoing immense suffering. Uh, He talks a little bit later in the chapter uh, about peril and sword. In other words, these people were put to death. They had family members who had been put to death by sword. They were experiencing incredible financial difficulties and so forth, um, social alienation, etc. And yet, Paul says this, and then he goes on to write three of the most famous verses in the Bible. I'm going to read them in a moment. And he gives us the key that is irrepressible happiness. If you want the key to irrepressible happiness, get ready because it's about to come. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the verses straight after the other one, two, three. I'm going to give you the principle or the key of each verse. Then read the next verse, give the key, read the next verse, give the key. All right, so I'm going to give it to you up front, not at the end, but up front. Because I know many of you have trouble concentrating this time of year, right? So I just get it out there, then you can drift off to sleep and come back when I pray, okay? Um, <clears throat> if that's what you want to do. Uh, and then we're going to take those scriptures and we're going to just um, work them a little bit into our lives. I'm going to read the scripture, give you the key, and then we're going to work it into, uh, I guess, some situational uh, experience. <clears throat> but I believe that your happiness will be as strong as your capacity to embrace these three big ideas. You will not want to forget this. You'll want to mark this in your Bible. Uh, it starts in one of the most famous of all of the scriptures, Romans eight twenty eight, that says this. And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him and who, and who, uh, who have been called according to his Purpose. I'm reading from the NIV. Unfortunately, I've memorized the King James, and sometimes they cross. <laughs> uh, here's the principle. And those of you who grew up in church in the 70s and 60s, I know what I'm talking about, but it doesn't matter. Uh, here's the principle. Our bad things turn out for good. Our bad things turn out for good. He then goes on and says this. For those God foreknew, Right, He also predestined, something was definite, to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Here's principle number two. Principle number one was our bad things turn out for good. Principle number two, our good things can never be lost. Our good things can never be lost. 
verse 3 that we're going to be sort of studying, verse 30 in the, in the chapter. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And the principle there is, the best things are yet to come. Paul gives us the foundation for the prayer that Jesus prayed when he said, your joy will be filled. And the foundation is this, bad things can be turned to good, good things can never be taken, and the best is yet to come. I'll say it again. You're so excited. Good, bad things can be turned for good. Good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. So Paul just said, exactly, Tian, cut something. <laughs> I want to kind of dig down on this a little bit because he says here all things. I'll talk about all things. Because most Christians, or a lot of Christians, struggle with the idea that all things might happen to them. A lot of Christians think, well, I'm a good person, I've served God, only certain things should happen to me, and most of them should be good. Now I accept, but if you look, a little bad thing here or there, but not too many bad things, because isn't Jesus going to bless me? Isn't my life going to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows? Isn't, isn't my experience going to be all, you know, cakewalk and, and niceties? But, but Paul is writing to a bunch of persecuted Christians in, in Rome, and he basically says, hey guys, your experience could be anything. All things happen to you. And, and for many people, they struggle with the whole idea of all things. I knew a guy quite well, actually came to this church years ago. And uh, he left and moved on for whatever reason and left town. I ran into him a couple of years later. He was driving a, a late model BMW. I think it was a brand new Beamer, actually. Um, seven series Beamer. That means something to some of you, I'm sure. And uh, he just re, uh, built this palatial house. And uh, I was talking to him and he said to me, oh, God is good. God's been good to me, John. God's been good to me. Oh, praise God. Good for you, mate. That's great. I ran into him a couple of years later. Uh, he was divorced and bankrupt. And, uh, and he walked away from God. Because why? Well, God, 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 God turned nasty. I don't know what it was. <laughs> One minute God was good to me. Next minute God's not so good to me. See, he struggled with something that a lot of people struggle with. That all things can happen to people who follow Jesus Christ. And for some people, when some of those all things happen, they're more shocked by the fact that all, that, you know, that some all things happen to me. But how about the blessings? But, but the all things, and, and so they get nasty and dirty, and you know, they walk away from their faith because somewhere in their mind or in their heart, they've concluded that this good God is no good to me any or for me anymore. No, 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 no. No, all things may be the experience of any even follower of Jesus Christ. Seems to be what the text is saying here, and it's something that I find a lot of people struggle with. Um, also, it, it, I want to say that the text seems to indicate that, that bad things do happen. Um, now, hey, don't get me wrong, if you 
bring the principles of Christ and apply them into your life, there's certain complications in life that you won't have to deal with, for, absolutely for sure. Uh, however, there are some things in life, of course, that are outside of the bounds of your control. And some things are bad. That The Bible is not saying here that you know every cloud has a silver lining that some they might seem bad but oh no they're really good you know don't don't define bad things as bad things because you know uh, 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 some things you just think are bad but they're really good that's that's not true uh, when Jesus turns up at the tomb of Lazarus he he cries why does he cry I believe because he hates death he wants to conquer death death is not what Jesus is about it's a bad thing and Jesus is emotionally moved because of the death of Lazarus he doesn't come and he doesn't say oh listen you know don't worry um, the family of Lazarus you know this is just a, a, an opportunity for me to show my power come on you know be positive no it was a bad thing and Jesus wept and sometimes bad things happen to you and the best thing you can do is have a good cry <laughs> And just accept that it's a bad thing. The text isn't saying that bad things aren't bad things. Bad things do happen. But what it is saying is that God takes them and brings something good out of your life. Did you know there's only a small number of things that can really hurt you? Only a small number of things. Uh, this could be an exhaustive list. I'm going to give them to you. You might like to write these down because these are the only things that can hurt you. Your foolishness, your pride, your selfishness, your hardness of heart, your denial of your own flaws and weaknesses, that is your self-deception, your belief that you don't need God. They're the only things that can really hurt you. Wow. Those things right there. Your hardness of your heart, your selfishness, your pride, your foolishness, your denial of, you know, your self-deception, your denial, your inability to acknowledge your flaws and weaknesses, and then the belief that you don't need. If, if, you, if you overcome those things, you can overcome anything. If you can get that out of your life, then everything that happens to you can work towards the good. See, sometimes selfishness in the short run feels good, but God knows in the long run it's not. Some of you, uh, there are things that you wish you had that you don't have. I can assure you that everything you need, God has given to you. You might, well, if I just had this, and in the short term, it feels good. But God understands in the long term. As I said, in the short term, selfishness might advance you, but in the long term, it's going to undermine you. In the long term, it will do you no good. It's also not saying, and just some of the things that people think, it's also not saying that if you didn't get your first option, it's because there was a better option down the track for you. It's not saying that. That could be true, by the way, but it's not saying that. It's not saying if you didn't get your first option in the uni, don't worry, there's a better option. You know, God had something better for you. If you didn't get the job, don't worry, God has a better job for you. If you asked her to marry you and she said, no, don't worry, God has a better woman for you. You, know? you put an offer on the house, you didn't get the house, don't worry, God has a better house. Now, now, now those things may be true. Okay? God's grace is remarkable. But the truth is that's not what this is saying. That's not the, the foundation to irresistible joy. Paul has just given us the foundation. This is a deep foundation. We could talk about this all day. This is a deep foundation to an irrepressible, irresistible joy. And it's not a joy 
that's merely based on circumstance. Because if you get the job or you don't get the job, that's a circumstance. If you get the girl or you don't get the girl, that's a circumstance. If uh, you get the house or you don't get the house, that's a circumstance. You're still basing your happiness, you're still basing your joy on a circumstance. And there is a foundation here that goes beyond the circumstance. In fact, 28 and 29, whilst 28 you can pull out of a, a bless me box, you know, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. It's a wonderful verse. You put that on your letterhead, you know, you put that on a, a, on a, a plaque and put that on your fridge or whatever, but you can't remove it from the next verse. The reason I say that is because the next verse starts with the word for. For. There's a reason. The word for is a connecting word between this idea that God takes the things of your life that are not all good, but brings something good as a result out of those circumstances. And what might they be? What might that be? Well, the key, of course, is in the next verse because it starts with the word for. This is done for that. And what is the for? It says, for those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's the four. There's the good, folks. There's the good that cannot be lost. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers or sisters. Here's the deal, folks. God does not promise anybody better circumstances he promises everybody a better life did you get that you're not promised better circumstances you're promised a better life you're promised a deeper a richer more significant life Jesus suffered not so that we didn't have to suffer he suffered so that our suffering would bring about a purpose there would be something of value uh, that it was leading us towards See, Christianity and the, and the Bible and, and Jesus never promised a better circumstances of life. They constantly promise a better life. Now, some of you are saying right now, well, what's the difference? Isn't life the mere sum total of my circumstances? How, how can I have uh, a better life with less better circumstances? You see, everything that happens is moving you towards this incredible outcome and that's what I have to bring you back to that's what Paul is bringing these believers back to that's what you've got to see he uses an interesting word he uses the word predestined now there's a lot of argument about predestination as a theology and I don't want to get into that this morning and for many of you that wouldn't mean anything anyway and it's not about free will versus predestination he's not using it in the context of that argument he's using it within the context of comfort what he's saying is that there is something predestined there is something fixed in your future and it doesn't matter what has happened to you and it doesn't matter what you've done there is something that is predestined it is a fixed point it is an it is an immovable part of your future and it's this it's transformation God is going to metamorphosize us God is going to change us talk about a better life you cannot study the life of Jesus Christ and not fall in love with him you you could not understand more about Jesus and not get a deeper sense of 
of appreciation of who he is when you see the depth of his truth of the words that he speaks, yet the breadth of his love, his ability to embrace everybody. When you see his immense wisdom, yet his almost affable approachability, his courage and his greatness. And here's the thing, folks. That's what you are becoming. Everything that's happening in your life in 1918 has been polishing you. It's been conforming you. It's, it's been shaping you. It's been sharpening you. God is so much more concerned about who you are than what you do. God is so much more concerned about who you are than about what you have. And let's be honest, folks, so are you about the people you live with, right? I mean, you are more concerned concerning the people you live with about who they are than necessarily what they know or what they have. You want to live with a person who somehow reflects this wisdom, who reflects this patience, who reflects this love, who has this depth, who has this life that Jesus demonstrates for us. I mean, this is, this is so fixed in Paul's mind, right? That as he writes this letter to these people in Rome, he uses something that is so conf- almost confusing, it's so profound, I don't know if you saw it when I read it a moment ago, but what I just read to you contains some of the most uh, uh, hard-to-understand Bible in all of Paul's writings. I don't know if you picked it up, but he said this. He said that those he's predestined, he went on, and finally he says to those he has also glorified. He uses past tense. Isn't that bizarre? Had they been glorified at that point had you ever read that before and thought that's strange they're not dead and yet Paul is saying you have been glorified have the people that you live with glorified have a quick look and just check no no that's okay (laughs) maybe it happened while I was preaching (laughs) Paul uses past tense have a look at it for yourself. And the, the profundity, the power of this past tense. What, what he's saying is that this is so certain. This, this predestined, right? So it's, it's in the future. Yes, it's past tense. He's predestined and you are glorified. It hasn't happened yet, but it's happened. What Paul is saying is that this is so certain that you are on a collision course with greatness that cannot be avoided. (laughs) That's you. God has you on a collision course for greatness. That in Paul's mind, this predestined greatness of you is just so sure that as he refers to it in the past tense. That's how sure he is that this is going to happen. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of God, that we might be the firstborn. The older translation says, amongst many brethren. That's 29. That's the um, verse 29 in the King James Version. Uh, The newer translations say brothers and sisters. The older translations just use the masculine. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why there's this kind of um, conundrum here between brothers and sisters and brethren. Because it does include you ladies. So the more modern translators thought, we don't want to exclude the ladies, so we'll include the ladies. 
The older translation didn't exclude the ladies, though. You'd have to go back into the culture. You'd have to understand that in that culture, uh, a man, a male, received the bulk of the inheritance of the family. In fact, pretty much all of the inheritance of the family. The female did not inherit. It was the culture. It was the way it was put. And what Paul is trying to communicate here is that we are to receive his inheritance. We are adopted into his family. And whether you're male or female, there's no second-class inheritors. We all get the whole lot. You will be glorified. You will inherit all that Jesus has. Whether you're male or whether you're female, it makes no difference the term here used as brethren is indicating that you receive first class inheritance irrespective of your gender that you are part of his family we move from formality to intimacy we move from conditional to unconditional we are we are now rich what is his becomes ours Paul is not promising better circumstances he's promising a better life He's promising that you will, be ha- you will come, you will become, you are becoming great. You will have a life of joy, a life of humility, a life of nobility, a life, of, uh, a life eternal. See, well, how can you be irrepressibly filled with joy? How can you have a happiness that is not the result of circumstances? Paul is writing to people who desperately need to know this. And he informs them. He says, your bad things will turn out for good. The good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. To those he predestined, this is a, this is a fixed point in the future he called. And to those he called, he justified. And to those he justified, he also glorified. Can I encourage you this morning? I don't know everybody in the room, and you might not be a Christian. Can I encourage you this morning, don't become a Christian because it suits you. (laughs) Don't become a Christian because it seems relevant. Uh, Don't become a Christian because it's encouraging. Don't become a Christian because it's exciting or comforting. There's only one one reason you want to become a Christian, and that is because it's true. (laughs) No, no, No other reason that you want to follow Jesus other than he is who he says he is. Now, what I love about this, uh, uh, the verse I read to begin with, the verse 18, Paul said, um, considering, for I consider. The old King James Version says, for I reckon. And it's the same idea. And it's this. I've got all these doubts, and I want to have this joy. So I'm basing this joy on a deeply thought through and held conviction. So you know how most people deal with um, dire circumstances most people deal, deal with dire circumstances by some form of escapism tell me lies tell me sweet little lies tell me, tell me lies I don't want to know the truth the truth is too painful the truth hurts oh I had a shock on Christmas day man thank God for the sales I can go shopping and have some retail therapy you know I can get some good discounts and help me get over my lousy family I can't wait for the shops to open on boxing day <laughs> I'm not saying that's anybody in this room, but maybe that's somebody somewhere. And so I go for some retail therapy. And, and what am I trying to do? I, I'm trying to solve. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to just distract myself from the pain. 
And this is how so many people live. So many people open a, a bottle of, of, of uh, Jack Daniels or whatever uh, because they're hoping that somehow this will, this will take me out of my reality because my reality is too painful. I, I just want to escape. You know, I want to get down to the beach and just watch the ocean and just somehow you know, calm the nerves and, and, and just calm the anxiety. And, and look, there's nothing wrong, of course, with you know, recreation. There's nothing wrong with swimming. There's nothing wrong with having a break. But, but there is something wrong if you have to seek escapism for the purpose of, of peace of mind. If somehow you've got to get a little bit you know, tipsy or somehow you've just got to escape because reality is too painful for me. Karl Marx, I believe, made a, uh, a, a statement that is so far from the truth where he said that Christianity is the opiate of the masses. And what he meant by that was, you know, Christianity is just, is, is just a cheap way to try to escape from the reality of life. It's like a cheap drug, you know, you get all these fairy stories and it makes people feel better about themselves and about their lives. Karl Marx could not be more wrong. Paul was no academic fly-by-night. Paul was an incredibly deep-thinking, intelligent man. And Paul said, I've considered this. I've worked it out. I've dove deep into the truth and the reality of my circumstances. And I know this. I know that the good, I know the best is yet to come. I know that the good things can't be lost. And I know that the worst you do for me will turn out to my betterment. I know this. You can't hurt me. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The word gain is kadosh, money in the bank. You kill me and it's like putting a million dollars in my bank account. You can't defeat me. I have an irrepressible joy. I have a happiness that's not tossed around by the mere weight or, or circumstances of life. I've reckoned it out. I've considered it through. I've thought it deeply. And I know the truth. And I tell you, 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 you as no doubt I have, maybe you know people, or you've seen them on the television as I, as I have in, somewhat regularly. Someone comes on the television who's lost a child or some tragedy. And God bless them, you know, that they say, we don't want this to happen to others. And so they make a deal of it and they either change public policy concerning, you know, some area that's going to protect children in the future in relation to what has happened to them, whatever. Or they bring a spotlight to a social ill because they don't want their loved one to have departed in vain. And there's something noble about that. That's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this. <laughs> as important as that may be, that may be a good thing to do. Maybe. It actually doesn't solve the real pain of the soul. It doesn't bring the kid back. It doesn't put the circumstances together. These people are trying to work through some of the most difficult and painful and uh, dire circumstances that any person could have to deal with, you know, the death of a child. 
and this is the way they do it and God bless them for that and I hope that they bring about some good but all of their efforts does not bring their child back you see I don't believe that there's anything else other than what we have just read that can help you deal with the depths the suffering of this life the truth of the matter is everybody in this room has to deal with painful experiences we will have to deal with circumstances that if we could wave a magic wand (laughs) or had three wishes we could do without so what do we do see don't underestimate yourself your soul is too great your soul is too significant for anything else to deal with its pain outside of this. I don't think there is anything else that can bring joy to the human heart, irrespective of the circumstances, than what Paul gives us in this incredibly famous passage of Scripture. Where he picks up the idea of a, a, an overwhelming joy that was given to us by Jesus and then applies it and says, this is it. The bad will turn out for good. The good cannot, cannot be overcome. The good will last and the best is yet to come. You take these scriptures, you apply them deep to your life and nothing can resist you. Let's- Thank you for listening to this podcast.